Hello and welcome to the Serverless Transformation Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all things serverless. In this week's show, we're joined by Ryan Jones, the CEO of Serverless Guru. Hi, Ryan, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Ben. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Um, so you're obviously the CEO and founder of Serverless Guru. Could you talk to us a bit more about what you do and what an average day in your life looks like? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, Serverless Guru was, uh, was kind of founded off of the idea that uh, in the cloud computing space specifically, uh, I started to see like a gap open up when I was actually working as a, uh, a application developer. And so that, that gap was around uh, serverless technologies, specifically on AWS. And so the stuff that I was doing on a day-to-day basis, I was actually able to kind of leverage that skill set. And it kind of positioned me in a way where I got a lot more opportunity than I thought I would. And so based on that, I was coming into a new company. Uh, specifically, I was at Nike. Um, there was a ton of really smart people there. And they've been senior developers and all this stuff for you know 10 years, 15 years. Um, they kind of seen the whole cloud computing uh, thing develop. And then because I was learning about Lambda and about DynamoDB and API Gateway and all these uh, serverless services, I ended up getting uh, kind of put into more of a senior role a lot faster. Uh, and as I continued to build on that skill set, um, I ended up getting more opportunity. And then I started seeing, oh, wow, there's there's a lot of, I'm getting into meetings that I probably shouldn't be a part of, but I am because of this knowledge. And so then I just saw that as like an opportunity to kind of grow my career, uh, continue with it. And so uh, that's kind of what Serverless Guru turned into. At first, it was going to be a training site, and then it was going to be a blog, and then uh, people started requesting services, and then slowly grew from like one person out to uh, a whole bunch of people here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and then from there, you know, I had to learn how to do management and how to manage all these different people that are working on uh, multiple different projects. Um, at one point, when it was just me, there was like me and then three projects that I was balancing at once, um, and you know, some crazy hour days, but. Uh, slowly grew into more like learning how to do like taxes and start a company and all these things. Um, and so my day to day is still pretty heavily on the administration side, but I actually do a lot of development as well and consulting for clients. Um, and then now the team has actually grown internationally as well. And so is our client base and some of the partnerships that we have. So over the past, uh, since November of 2018 to now, uh, it's really ch- turned into something that I never even imagined. Um, and I think there's a, a pretty bright future ahead for that. So I would say my day-to-day is mostly consulting and uh, probably like 30% administration and management. Oh, it's really cool. And it's really uh, really exciting how organic that was that you sort of slipped into seeing that demand and then were able to create a company around it. I guess um, you talked about how you sort of found serverless, but I guess a lot of the customers who come to you are I'm assuming a clients who are looking to adopt serverless and looking for your expertise there. What are the reasons that they're looking to adopt serverless from the business side rather than from the tech side? Yeah, so there's a lot of business value with serverless. Um, you know, one of the one of the big ones uh, would be just uh, developer productivity and efficiency. So as people develop serverless, uh, or as people adopt serverless and actually use it inside their organizations, they're able to achieve a lot more speed. Um, and so you end up being able to use the exact same things that you had, the exact same resources, uh, human resources, and you don't have to modify that, change it, or bring anybody else in. Uh, but you'd cut away a lot of these processes, which uh, don't need to happen as much. And also you cut away uh, the infrastructure overhead that you had to manage before. And so as these companies transition, they end up finding themselves a lot of times being surprised at the level of uh, things that they just don't have to worry about anymore. And as that starts to click, 
then they can really, you know, take advantage of that. And that's something that at first can be a little bit hidden uh, and a little bit mysterious with serverless because up front, you know, you show somebody a, a serverless architecture diagram and they see all these all these different services. Maybe they didn't have an architecture diagram to begin with at first, some of these companies. And so when you start showing them all these different things and all this jargon on all these services and how they link together, um, it's it can be you know, jarring at first, but then after, after they actually get into it and start working with it and they get those, uh, those benefits, um, you know, you can see, uh, product delivery increase a lot faster. You see their costs go down, um, overall. Um, and one thing that was interesting with, with some of our clients is that when we had, um, some of the stuff happen earlier in this year, um, when demand for these user apps actually dropped off a cliff, um, what was really interesting is that, you know, some of our clients that were using servers, um, they, their usage, uh, they actually had to start scaling that back. Some of them had auto scaling. Uh, some of the smaller ones actually had to, you know, kind of um, turn off some servers to actually match that because their demand fell off a cliff. Whereas the serverless clients, um, it adjusted 100%. Like automatically, the, in, you know, in January and December, uh, they had high traffic. Serverless was handling that. They had tons of land invocations and all this stuff happening in the background. And then once uh, uh, February, March, April uh, happened and the user base dropped off a cliff, everything automatically adjusted. And so all their expenses that they were paying for, they didn't have anybody manually going in there and modifying uh, resources. And so, you know, they were that, that it's hard to fully see the, the power of that, but um, it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty incredible. It's really interesting because I think we often talk about that auto scaling is, you know, your demand suddenly peaks. How do you make sure you're available? But making sure you're not over provisioning is one of those huge cost benefits that, that you mentioned earlier. And yeah, we've seen some of our clients at Theodo, some of them have obviously seen less traffic with the current situation and auto scaling back down has been really useful. Uh, but some of them have seen more and making sure they're available has also been a, a big part of that. When you talked on the business side of adopting serverless, there's sort of two key parts you talked about. There's the the speed of delivery and agility, and then there's the the cost savings side, the total cost of ownership side. Are you seeing a change in the trend of clients? Are we seeing are you seeing more people looking for the cost savings side um, these days, or is, has it stayed sort of the same split between cost saving and agility? And obviously, there are those clients who want both. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so everyone everyone probably wants both at the end of the day, but I think that based on where the company's at, um, it'll be different. So if it's a if it's a smaller company and they didn't really have a, a huge, like maybe they're running virtual machines and all that stuff, but they didn't really have a big um, application user base, then they weren't getting a lot of traffic. Their expenses weren't super high, so switching to serverless doesn't really give them a huge cost saving benefit, at least on the raw the raw cost. But what we end up seeing is that on the developer productivity side they can end up getting a lot of cost savings because now they're able to move a lot faster and build features out faster. And they're having to spend less time worrying about infrastructure and underlying issues that pop up. Um, and so that saves a lot of money on that side. But then for the the other clients, which are more like enterprise, which uh, they have a lot of servers and they have a lot of different applications and projects going, that's where they get a really big cost savings um, around serverless. And so a lot of times when, you know, and, and not just in our current situation, but but before, uh, you would actually see a company like that start thinking about serverless. And a big one that would get brought up a lot was cost savings. Uh, and that was strictly because, you know, we get all these benefits and um, also uh, we're going to get cost savings out of it. And that, that seemed like a consistent argument to kind of get uh, leadership buy-in. 
Um, that makes complete sense. And we often uh, we often say cost saving and total cost of ownership sh- saving on on podcasts like this. Um, but I know that you've looked quite in detail on some of the cost saving you've done with your clients. Maybe not exact numbers, and I know I'm putting you a bit on the spot, but can you give listeners an idea of the magnitude of cost saving that you've seen with some of your clients? Yeah, definitely. So um, with the current situation that took place, uh, that, that one client that I was bringing up and how their usage dropped off, um, you know, they, they, I believe they were able to realize around like 80% automatic like savings, um, strictly because uh, their serverless usage, once the user base dropped, everything just scaled down automatically. So that was an interesting case where it was no human input, uh, no uh, manual intervention or anything like that. And they were automatically able to scale down not only their, their databases scaled down, but their queues scaled down and all the different serverless services uh, scaled down, which in a different case, that would have been virtual machines and you would have to do a fair amount of uh, manual intervention there and or have uh, some type of scripting. But even, you know, no one really has in mind, uh, no one pl- no one prepares for a hundred year event like that. So um, at some to some degree, you're going to have to do some manual intervention. Um, so that was... That was one part about 80% on that side. For clients that actually switch from doing uh, virtual machines and things like that, if they're, during, if they're doing it at scale to something like uh, you know, AWS Lambda, Cloud Functions, uh, to serverless, um, we've, we've seen some uh, transition from, I believe it was, uh, I think we had like a $1 million AWS account and uh, per year, uh, and they were able to reduce that like, down by about uh, 300000 um, it was only That's the start crazy. of it. Yeah. So it was like, it was like six months, eight months of like, uh, helping like build tooling and things like that. Cause it's, it's like, you want to trans, you're like transitioning to serverless, but you're also trying to identify all these virtual machines, which are like black boxes and, um, trying to figure out which ones do you need to transition and all that stuff. And you end up cutting out a lot of these, uh, these kind of like dead machines that you've just been kind of carrying over every year. Um, so that, and on that front, there's another benefit to it, which is, making a transition like this is it's going to clean house. And uh, there's a lot of downstream benefits of that. Definitely. I think observability becomes as, as just so much more important. Um, I think in a serverless architecture, it's so obvious where you're spending money. Whereas in those legacy systems with maybe, you know, multiple applications running on the same server and a spreadsheet somewhere where someone's sort of uh, maintaining which is on what server, knowing which which servers are basically dead and not running any real applications with any load is really difficult without quite advanced tooling. Whereas in serverless, you're getting that out the box. So I guess it's that challenge of investing in observability for systems that ultimately you're probably going to replace. Have you found an observability solution that works for both, both for the virtual machines or containers and for serverless? Or are you tending to see yourself using one tool for the virtual machines and containers to try and identify which ones to replace with serverless and then switching tooling when you move to serverless? Yeah, good question. So, yeah, so it's been interesting to watch uh, the different observability, uh, uh, these kind of like third-party vendors kind of pop up. Um, So at at first, a lot of them were very serverless uh, heavy and there was a niche market for that. And to a large degree, that's still the case. So, um, you know, like Lamigo and Thundra and Serverless Framework Pro and all these different ones that are out there. Epsigon, uh, um, excuse me if anybody's listening and I, and I left your platform out. <laughs> and then uh, now we're seeing a lot of the bigger uh, the bigger players that have been around for a long time that did servers and containers like uh, New Relic. Um, I know that New Relic, they're down here in actual Portland, Oregon. So they're about, uh, about eight blocks or 10 blocks away from me. 
um, or 12 blocks or 20. I don't know who if anybody's going to anybody's going to use a map <laughs> to figure out my location. Um, but yeah, so they're actually in a building in downtown Portland, um, and they actually I believe they bought uh, IO Pipe, right? IO Pipe, yes. And so now they have New Relic Serverless, and so there's companies like that, and Datadog is making a huge push right now into the serverless space yeah. as well. And so they've been servicing a lot of enterprise clients before and uh, a lot of those clients, containers and uh, virtual machines. And now with the serverless adoption happening, um, I believe Datadog did like a uh, state of serverless thing where they actually talked about how people transitioned. Um, And now they've been seeing a huge demand for Lambda functions and all this stuff with serverless specifically. So if I had an existing, uh, if I had existing stuff, I'd probably lean towards that specifically just because the, the serverless niche uh, market is not going to be able to help with the containers and the servers at the, the same degree as someone like a Datadog or um, a New Relic, just because they've been around for so long. And the interesting thing with that Datadog uh, state of serverless survey was the adoption of serverless, or at least AWS Lambda, grew faster in large organizations than it did in startups. So that point you're making earlier about cost saving, and that's probably the big reason behind that. And those large organizations will likely already have a provider like Datadog or New Relic. So also in those large organizations, getting sign-off uh, using the provider can also be a big advantage when it's built into one they're already using. And I guess you get, a, you get a bit of a challenge in, can one tool really do everything for both? And probably it can't. There's probably a compromise in having a tool that can, can work for both. But I guess we're going to see those companies investing more and more in their serverless offering over the next years. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. I think that um, once you see like the, you know, obviously all these enterprise client or clients that we've worked with um, and that I've personally worked with, uh, they, a lot of times they end up having three, four different um, monitoring solutions and they're all, some of them do the exact same thing. But when you're, when you're working at that scale and your budget is that big, um, they have enough flexibility to kind of try everything. Um, And so I've definitely seen that too. (laughs) Sure. And I guess we're in 2020 now, the year's gone a bit differently to how most of us expected, but um we can see the large observability providers are starting to to invest in serverless. Um, has serverless adoption in general got to the point you thought it would have done by 2020? Is it lagging behind where you thought it'd be? Is it ahead of where you thought it would be? Yeah, so uh, you know, I thought about that question quite a bit in 2018, 2019. Um, even in 2017, there's actually a Portland meetup, um, the Serverless Days Portland for 2017. Uh, and that one was really interesting because it was a small room uh, in the bottom of a, uh, a theater where people usually do shows and stuff. And then Stackery was there um, and a few other companies uh, right when they were kind of like starting to get more publicity and stuff. And so that was kind of cool because I got to spend a lot of, I got to spend very close time with some of the, the leadership people there from the different companies. Um, and so, yeah, so seeing all these companies get acquired uh, and seeing uh, people start actually getting interested into serverless and all the tooling and stuff as well. So um, I think that the, the adoption rate is definitely increasing a lot. I know uh, serverless frameworks specifically, they're, they're definitely scaling up um, in terms of uh, the amount of just kind of general people that are switching to it, which is nice um, because I, I invested very early into like writing articles around serverless frameworks. So it's nice to see that maybe those articles will be useful. Um, and so, yeah, so I think, I think it's not, not like the most optimal case where I thought, okay, now everybody's using serverless, everybody switched over. Uh, it's just going crazy. But what I will say is that just thinking about serverless gurus specifically and how we've grown over the past like one year or two years, uh, we're now doing projects which were unthinkable before. So 
I think that the fact that we're we have enterprise clients and we actually do some of the work that we do, um, I would I wouldn't have imagined us doing that this early on. So yeah, so I think we're we're on, definitely on track. Oh, it's really great to hear. And I guess for the why we're not at the everything's going crazy, everyone's using serverless everywhere. What do you think the blockers are? What do you think the things slowing the adoption? Even though it's going fairly fast, what's stopping it being even faster? Yeah, I think I think a big one is uh, probably knowledge. So I think knowledge of uh, knowledge. I think a lot of people hear the benefits, but some people are maybe still skeptical. But I think also there's a there's a certain level of like even if you know it's a good idea, is it really a priority for your business? And I think that you know some of the stuff that's happened this year, uh, where you know uh, people have like scaled back something that we were talking about earlier. I think it's kind of given people a, a way to basically press the brakes a little bit and then kind of look at everything and start thinking about is, is now the time that we actually start making some of these, uh, these big decisions. Um, because it's a, it's a huge undertaking when you do something like a serverless migration and you move from an existing system because there's so many different components and parts uh, and your team has to be up to speed and you have to have all these uh, potentially these patterns and there has to be somebody that's driving that whole initiative. And I feel like that, for somebody to drive that whole initiative, there has to be a pretty good understanding about how, like what, where you're going. Um, uh, so that gets the analogy there would be uh, somebody that can see the forest through the trees to some degree. And so you have to, you have to be able to have done serverless migrations before in the past to some degree to know that this is the path you should go. This is why this path works um, and how, go, how to go about that. And so that's, that's, um, that's one thing that I've learned personally doing stuff with serverless guru is, is how to see how these serverless migrations, like where they go wrong. Um, you know, you learn a lot from those those ones and then also like how to actually make them go right. So yeah, I would say knowledge is a big one um, and just general uh, business uh, people feeling like maybe not it's not the right time based on other priorities. And uh, yeah, so maybe we'll see that speed up actually uh, towards the end of the year. Yeah, I could definitely see that happening. And I agree, knowledge and education are a huge sort of, issues for service right now because getting the right people to, to guide your team as you mentioned uh, is a challenge um, I often also refer to serverless as a moving target I feel like I figure out the best practices in the end of 2019 and then I'm having to keep up to date with a lot of content into 2020 and beyond how do you yourself keep up to date with with everything that changes in serverless and keep your team up to date yeah great question yeah so some of the uh, I've actually been fortunate that the serverless consultants at serverless guru um say serverless so many times <laughs> but um uh if anybody's counting listening to the podcast um but yeah so with the people that work at serverless guru they're they're super intelligent and they they follow all this stuff the same way i do so i'm actually learning a lot from the the team at serverless guru um the things that i do per- personally um I, I try to write content a lot of times um i'm very intertwined with the twitter community around serverless i'm always watching and reading what people are are doing even if I'm not interacting with them, I'm just kind of silently in the corner looking at it sometimes. Um, so I think that those are really good ways. So if you're if you're trying to learn about um, serverless and you're trying to get involved with it, I would definitely go to Twitter as a first as a first route. It seems like that's kind of the hub where people kind of send out these messages about their articles and about new releases. Um, and then from there, you can kind of branch off. You can go read those things and just fo- kind of follow it down the rabbit hole. Um, I know also the AWS uh, crew is also doing the, um, I think they have some stuff around best practices they're releasing now. I can't remember the exact name of it, but um, that would be another source to kind of learn about this stuff. Yeah, I think it's the service lens, right? 
Uh, yeah, so service lens. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, Twitter is definitely a great place to go. I actually uh, made a Twitter account once I started getting really into serverless just to keep up with the content that was coming out. I think it's where you get the freshest content. And a resource that I guess you don't use, but others should definitely use is the Serverless Guru blog on Medium. You're writing some amazing content there. And that actually brings us on to the next topic I wanted to talk about, which is you recently, I think, finished up your uh, five-part migration guide for serverless. Um, I think migration is the scary word that people want to do, but uh, maybe, again, it's that knowledge gap in how to do it. I guess it ranges from lift and shift all the way up to a serverless first architecture completely re-architecting what's the split between the sort of projects that you do are you doing much of the lift and shift are you focusing on the serverless first are you doing a mix of both yeah definitely a mix of both um so the serverless first projects those ones are always the easiest i would say um they may not be the most like they're not the most rewarding i think because basically personally i like to uh, do a lot of problem solving and i like to be put into situations where it'll just be completely chaotic um, in some, to some degree, or it can get chaotic, and then try to figure out how do I make, how do I move these pieces together to kind of lessen how chaotic this is to actually get something done. Um, so we've had cases like that happen, but the, that, that one's very rewarding. That would be the lift and shift type of thing um, where someone's doing a real uh, serverless migration with a ton of services with lots of different developers and uh, at a big company and there's tons of processes and you have to figure out how to work within that. If you're doing something like serverless first, um, those ones are, you know, you can get started so fast once you build up uh, experience with it. Like I, I was doing um, from the very beginning of my career working with um, serverless and these AWS services like Lambda and API Gateway and DynamoDB um, back in uh, 2017 around there. I ended up making a course out of that towards, I think, like 2019, 2018. And I did that because the my day-to-day job didn't really change too much. Like it was, okay, Ryan, we need to build this API endpoint. Okay, I'll use the exact same thing I used before. And, it's, and then it was slightly different, a background processing thing, some cron job. Okay, I'll do that. And you ended up build, or you end up building this, um, this elasticity and this number of patterns and different things that you can end up copying over. And so a lot of the work that I did at Nike around serverless framework and serverless development, I was able to end up copying that and sending it over to people to um, for them to use, uh, specifically internally for their projects, because the development process is so similar. So what I would say in that is, um, you know, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but, you know, when we talk about, like, how do I get started? What is the simplest path forward? I think that um, doing uh, serverless finding a use case that kind of makes up the 80% of your stuff and then knowing that really well, um, it's definitely a good path forward. And you can do a ton with just API Gateway Lambda and DynamoDB. Um, and then then you start learning how to do the infrastructure as code around it with something like serverless framework. And then you learn how to do a CI CD pipeline. Uh, and then once you kind of have this like full s- stack of tools that you know how to use, um, then you can start expanding it out. And now, of course, I know I know you've been you're like a huge proponent of uh, EventBridge, so yes. things have definitely changed uh, since then with the adoption of AppSync and all that stuff. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I think uh, it's crazy how much power you can have with just API Gateway and Dynamo, or even just with S3. Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff you can do, and I think James Bezik, uh, AWS uh, developer advocate, is running a great series where he's mainly just using S3 as the backend, and some really cool stuff you can do. Um, I guess to ask a more direct question on the topic we're just talking about, uh, I often get this question, I guess I've got my own views on it, but for you, 
Um, if someone has a, a monolithic application running in a Docker container somewhere, can they lift and shift that to a Lambda function? And is that the right thing to do? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so that's a thank you for dialing it back. So, um, so if you have a monolithic application inside of a Docker container, can you just directly lift and shift it? You know, that was a question that we had as well. Um, and I think that it it depends. So if you're if it truly is a monolithic application, you do have a lot of services inside of it, um, and it's not just you know you don't just have you know five different Docker containers that all are kind of isolated and well defined. The first thing that I would do uh, if I was approaching something like that is I would try to define what are the boundaries between all the services. So I would look at what does my application do? Okay, we've got account usage. Uh, you can create an account. You can do things like that. We have this user profile stuff. We have this dashboard functionality. And so I would draw lines around account and user and dashboard. And I would start thinking about splitting those up uh, completely. And so there'll be logical uh, things inside of your application. If you're using something that has like routing, for instance, in your, in your backend, you can sometimes end up using the similarity in the, the routes. Um, so if you have like nested paths, um, then you can say, okay, the base path is account, the base path is dashboard, the base path is user. And you can start looking at that and going, okay, can I break this apart and this apart and this apart um, to achieve the same functionality, but have them split up. And that's where I wouldn't directly lift and shift something over. I know that there is a, um, there is a, a kind of a, a movement and it, it makes sense because there's definitely, there's different levels to doing serverless and you want to make sure that you're not uh, jumping the gun. The first thing that you can do is start with a monolithic um, approach with serverless and you can move everything into a single Lambda function uh, and that will work. Um, but, you know, the more, the, the, the reason I would put an asterisk there with the Docker stuff is because you don't, like, you have to have very well-defined packages and stuff as well. So if everything was automated and you had all the scripting and you could actually just move that over to a Lambda function, maybe it could work. But I, I don't, I think that truly, if you want to get the benefit out of all this stuff, you really need to make those functions very small and you need to think about how do your services break down and I think that that's where sometimes you get that friction uh, in adoption and if people want to move to serverless because it, it requires rethinking the way that you've kind of structured your applications thus far. And uh, that can be, that can have a lot more things because then you have to think about what, okay, I need to strip away all these NPM packages. It was fine having this many on a Docker container or an EC2 instance, but now I actually need to think about, can I use, can I swap out Axios or an HTTP library for a native um, Node.js module or something. And, and at that point, that's going to require code refactoring and things like that. Um, but if you're just getting started and you do want to just switch over, you can make a monolith work um, with some exception. If you actually want to get the full benefit, then you probably want to break it down um, and break that monolith up into pieces um, just so that, you know, because there's an issue if, if people are listening and they're not familiar with serverless, when you have something that's, very large, your cold start times when people interact with that. Um, so if it's an API with backed by a Lambda function and that Lambda function is a monolith and has a ton of uh, dependencies, it can end up uh, taking, you know, 800 milliseconds to, uh, you know, 1.5 seconds for that response to come through if it's a cold start. But if you're underneath five megabytes uh, or right around that, you can end up having no cold start. And so uh, a lot of companies spend a lot of time working with serverless and trying to figure out how do I make a workaround and how do I make a hacky workaround to make my gigantic monolith work? So they'll do things like, um, like pinging the function, things like that to keep it hot. 
but sometimes that can be masking the problem. So yeah. And I guess we have provision concurrency now, which is a way to sort of use money to mask the problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the problem still remains. And I think one of the most impactful days of consulting I ever did was a, a client who came just for some help because their cold start times are really not good. Um, so I, I spent, I think, half a day with them. and was like, you realize you're, you're packaging your dev dependencies uh, inside. So we, we cut out the dev dependencies, which included things like Puppeteer with like a Chrome binary and loads of other stuff. <laughs> and uh, the cold start times are pretty much solved. So yeah, paying attention to the package that you're actually deploying and making sure, as you mentioned, to get those node modules limited is a really good way to get that performance good without having to do the hacks around Lambda warmers or having to use provision concurrency when you don't necessarily need to. So I agree a lot with with everything you said, basically. And I think it also links on to another tough question I have for you, which is uh, another tough question I get a lot. And it's it's nice to be able to ask them to somebody else rather than me have to answer them. Um <laughs> I want to use serverless. Do I have to use DynamoDB? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, my, my initial reaction to that would be no. Um, I think that uh, one, just based on pushback. So if you have a, if you have people at the company that are already uh, skilled with with uh, something like uh, MySQL or, or Postgres or a different, uh, like uh, let's say with MongoDB, um, you don't have to necessarily transition that. And I, and I would look at the migration as a series of phases. And so, um, you know, one would be like identifying the service boundaries, starting to get that stuff moved over, getting the infrastructure as code pattern to copy it over for all of your different services. So you have something that's very hardened, like this is a hardened pattern for building APIs. And then as you transition and you start actually getting things up in serverless and replacing some of your existing stuff, um, I don't think that you should be probably swapping out the backend or the, the database at that point. Um, as you as you get further along, um, is it worth it switching to DynamoDB at that point? I, I think it is, but it's definitely an undertaking. Um, I know Alex DeBry just wrote a really good book on DynamoDB, and uh, he goes into detail about using some of these like best practices around doing single table design and all that stuff. But for a lot of for a lot of companies, um, you know, they'll have a ton of uh, relational tables and all this stuff that they, they, if that's the, if that's the rock that you die on, and I'm not saying that Alex uh, deprived dies on that at all, or it's not related really. Um, but if that's the rock that you die on, um, the client may push back really hard just because they're going to go, well, we, this is completely unrelated to what we're doing. Why does this break down? And even if you tell them, well, it may not scale to that degree that you want it to. Um, it's uh yeah, it's definitely something that I would recommend. Um, but then if they want to go with something like uh, MySQL or Postgres, I would probably keep that in my back pocket and it would be something that I would bring back up at the at the right time. Sure. And would you go down the Aurora routes so still have sort of like a serverless RDS? Yeah, so I, I think that the, the issues that we've seen with that is that I guess the, the serverless Aurora where you have a Postgres or a MySQL um, I believe there's still some cold start time that's involved with it. And um, there, was, there was some other small issues that I can't think of off the top of my head. But what I do know is that if you're, if this is your main backend, uh, your main database, and you are doing Postgres and MySQL, I'd probably go with a regular Aurora. Um, if I was more of a, this was the greenfield application, something like that, and I was using MySQL and Postgres, then I would use serverless Aurora. Um, just because the the impact of some of those little those little issues with serverless Aurora, they don't really pop up when you have uh, low scale. 
but then as you kind of scale up um, something like an uh, Aurora by itself, not Aurora serverless, uh, kind of fits a bit better from my experience. No, that makes complete sense. And one other question on that, would you use RDS proxy between the Lambda and the, the RDS database? Yeah, yeah, good question. So that was always a really big problem um, before. So when people are building serverless applications and they're trying to get Lambda to work with um, with their relational database, they had to do things like connection pooling, uh, or connection pooling was hard. So there was a lot of connection manage- connection management that they had to do inside the Lambda function itself, and that that really broke down and it and it caused a lot of frustration for people. Um, so now with the emergence of Actually, I think Jeremy Daly did something before, um, which which was yes, uh, yes. lesser known. Yeah, so he kind of he had some stuff, and I know that some of the other community members. But that's the thing, right? Is like you have all this serverless stuff going on that you have to learn about, and then now you have to learn about this edge case with connection pooling. Um, so it's nice that AWS came out with something uh, like the RDS proxy um, as a as a way to kind of take some of that burden away from the developer. I think it's still there's still a lot of room for that stuff to be improved just because there's so some of these, some of these different pieces that you kind of have to fit together. Um, you don't even know that they exist until you hit that problem. Um, uh, one of them would be the provision concurrency, right? So if you're just starting, uh, why would you ever use that? And, and then, it's, and then eventually you end up learning um, some of the, the downsides of that. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I don't know if you've seen on Twitter, but there was an article on the the serverless transformation blog that we run. Uh, what a one hundred percent, what a typical serverless architecture looks like by one of our architects in Paris, Xavier Lefebvre. Um, and it got quite a quite a lot of traction on Twitter. Some people uh, less positive towards serverless, some people more positive towards serverless. And I think it was it was good in trying to his overall sort of architecture diagram showed sort of the range of AWS services that could be used in a serverless architecture. And that sort of triggered the debate about has serverless decreased the complexity or increased the complexity? What were your thoughts on that debate and uh, how do you think that will look going forwards? Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I did actually see that pop up on Twitter. I didn't know that that was uh, from your team. So that's, that's, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, so I, I just pulled up the article now and I'm kind of looking at it and I can definitely see that I can definitely see the pushback when people look at it and they're just like, you know, they have no idea what, what Lambda is um, or how event bridge fits in or AWS step functions. Uh, it's definitely going to be a little bit jarring. And I think that's just because with serverless, you can actually make all this stuff really well-defined. So you probably were still doing some of this stuff yourself, but maybe you built your own library internally at your company. And so you don't, it's harder for you to see the complexity from somebody else that built it, you know, two years ago, and it's inside of your code base that you haven't had to modify yourself. And so, for instance, if I went into an existing enterprise company and I started working within their code base as a developer, um, I wouldn't fully have a, I wouldn't have a full scope of all the complexity that went into it, and I didn't have to write that part. So, I think if you know if you're looking at it like that, and and then you look at this architecture, uh, it may seem complex. My opinion on it is definitely going to be uh, different than that. I think that being able to create an architecture diagram like this. And there's even tools out there now that can almost automatically do this, um, at least in a very in a very raw way, just by looking at how your resources are connected. I think that that's amazing. And I think that, you know, looking at this, I can see the full range of all the different things that are going to be interacting with it. And based on the architecture diagram and how similar the names are to the, uh, let's say, for instance, the Lambda functions were actually named in this case, 
I would actually be able to drill down to the specific code base. And ideally, they're isolated enough where I know the exact uh, the exact piece to kind of like work into um, and make things happen. So, um, yeah, my opinion would be that this is where we want to be. And I don't think that it increases complexity. You know, naturally, you could take one of the boxes that are inside of an architecture diagram that's very complex with serverless. And it could just be a, you know, user to, you know, amplify to the uh, to API gateway to a Lambda function and then to DynamoDB. And that's how it starts. And then gradually it kind of scales up into something that's much more uh, distributed um, and broken apart. So companies don't start with this with this kind of architecture diagram. But once they actually have it built out, um, the is it more complex than the alternative? Absolutely. Or sorry, is it more complex than the alternative? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Sure. No, and I agree with you. And I think it's, it's interesting to get this sort of, I think that there might be a bit of an echo chamber with some of the serverless articles that go out. So I think it was nice to see different sort of dev communities talking about this article. And I think the conversations would definitely be interesting. And um, Paul from Darklang is going to join the podcast next week to talk about his views on it, uh, probably from a Darklang perspective, but also from a, a non-serverless perspective. So I think that's going to be a really interesting conversation. Um, yeah. I think that's, yeah, I think that's... Um, that's probably all we have time for today. It was really interesting to talk to you. And is there anything, anything else you're working on at the moment? Anything you'd like to talk about? Yeah, let's see. Um, so we have the Talking Serverless podcast, um, which you were on. Uh, I think we released that last week. And then yes. uh, we're talking to a few different people, uh, similar to kind of what you're doing, and uh, interviewing them about their kind of experience. So that's if you want to check out Talking Serverless podcast, definitely do that. Um, we make a lot of content on Medium, so if you could do medium.com slash serverless guru, uh, we have a training site, which we're, you know, we built a, like a 90 plus course a while back. And if you're doing an intro to serverless, that, that could be helpful. Um, if you're looking for some more informal content, um, specifically, probably my opinion about a specific topic, uh, we have a YouTube channel as well, um, that you could check out and that's a, a serverless guru on YouTube. Great. Well, I'll add links to all of those and it sounds like you're, you're keeping busy with content. <laughs> yeah trying to <laughs> awesome well thanks so much for your time Ryan yeah thank you Ben well that brings us to the end of our conversation with Ryan and Ryan thank you so much for joining us today if you enjoyed the podcast please leave us a rating or a review on the podcast app of your choice also check out Ryan's podcast Talking Serverless this podcast Serverless Transformation is brought to you by Theodo we work in London, Paris and New York to help people deliver digital products primarily using serverless if you're interested in serverless training, delivery, or consulting, do get in touch. Otherwise, enjoy our free content on serverless transformation, the blog, podcast, newsletter, and open source projects.